Hello, and welcome to Pause Pop, Positively Pop Culture, where we talk about things we love enthusiastically and without guilt. I'm Carrie Yesner. And I'm KW Taylor. Today, we are doing a special Star Trek episode, primarily discussing Enterprise and Discovery, but we will also talk about other elements of the Star Trek universe and media. So let's dive right in. Yeah. So we both recently watched the pilot episode of Enterprise, and I wanted to talk about that one first because technically it is the earliest Star Trek series from a chronological standpoint of when the series takes place. Which I did not know. Yeah. So Enterprise actually takes place 100 years before the events of Star Trek The Original Series. Now, Star Trek The Original Series aired from 1966 to 1967, but Enterprise actually aired from 2001 to 2005 on UPN. Now, did you watch this when it was on? I did not. No, No, neither did I. And I feel like that's a little bit weird because we've both said that we like Scott Bakula, the lead actor, but we neither of us watched this when it was on. You said 2001? Yeah. I was 13. Mm-hmm. So it probably wasn't like super on my radar. Yeah. Yeah. And I was in, well, this will show everyone how much older I am than you, but I was in graduate <laughs> school. <laughs> when this, but I was young. Okay. I was still kind of young. But I think I just didn't watch it because I was so crazy busy. And I don't think I even had, there was a part of grad school when I didn't have cable or even like an antenna on my TV. So yeah, that would have been a problem. Yeah. So it just didn't really, you know, occur to me to try to seek it out through friends or or anybody else who had TV. So yeah, this again, this is 100 years before the original series. And it's on a new spaceship that's embarking, um, Captain Jonathan Archer. Um, is in command. And then we've also got Charles Trip Tucker and Subcommander T'Pol are kind of like the main folks. But I, mean, I guess I'm more interested just your your basic impressions of it. Did you enjoy it? What did you think of it? Yeah. Okay. So the pilot is actually two episodes or it's part one and part two. So it's about 90 minutes total. So by the end of it, I really liked it, but it took me a little while to kind of get invested in the characters and not figure out what was going on because everything's pretty clear, but it took me a while, a little while to to actually kind of care about them. But overall, I thought it was a lot of fun and I, I ended up liking a lot of the characters by the end of the episode. What were your first impressions? Yeah, I thought it was really good. I thought it had an interesting tone to it. Um, I thought it mostly looked pretty contemporary. Not that that has to be like a marker of, of good production, but the only things that sort of took me out were some of the scenes in space where they would sort of zoom out to show the ship flying looked a little not great. And I think maybe we need to address the the fact that there's a theme song that has lyrics and is yeah. sung, and that was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I, You know what? That really surprised me. I did not expect that at all. And... Let's see. I watched the first part a little while ago, and then I finished it last night. And the song comes back at the end, and I just, again, did not expect it. (laughs) (laughs) It really kind of takes you out of the mindset of, like, sci-fi, because it's poppy, and it's kind of a slow ballad. Yeah. (laughs) It's, like, thematically different than the show I think yes I would absolutely agree it's almost like a country pop song (laughs) and so it's called where my heart will take me by Russell Watson 
I will say that Firefly also used almost like a folksy sounding, like alterna country song as its theme song, and it had lyrics and was sung. But there was something about that that worked because Firefly was sort of meant to be a little bit of a Western. And even though you see Jonathan Archer growing up in like the Midwest or whatever, and there is this greater tie to Earth life because it's not as far in the future. So I think they did that to sort of ground you in his growing up, but it didn't work. I have talked casually to a couple people about this over the past few days before we recorded this, and yeah, nobody likes it. (laughs) It's terrible. (laughs) With apologies to poor Russell Watson, but yeah. I mean, I think it's a fine song, but as a theme song for a sci-fi show, it just does not work. No. I'm looking at the Wikipedia, and apparently it was received so poorly that fans created petitions against the use of the song. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, you're right. Fireflies absolutely works. And this one just just really doesn't. Does not. And I don't think, I can't remember the timeline if Firefly came a little bit before this and people thought, oh yeah, that's how you do it now. But no, this is just a bad move. I think that the fact too, that all the other Star Trek series use very orchestral sounding, very appropriate to the idea of a space opera with a little bit more gravitas, a little bit more of that grand exploration feel. And this just feels too casual and small Mm -hmm. for that. So, yeah. Yeah, I agree. And also Firefly came in 2002. Oh, okay. So it probably looked at Enterprise and was like, how do we do that better? Yeah. How do we do that in a way that is not bad? But again, like I said, it's it's much more thematically appropriate to, to Firefly and the scenes they show... See, that's the thing. They show space scenes when they're playing this country pop song. And on Firefly, when they played that song, they showed scenes of like riding around in the Old West looking stuff. So it was like not, yeah. Anyway, I'm digressing. (laughs) But that was the main thing I did. The only other thing I didn't like was that I did think that T'Pol was, I didn't love the way she was sort of filmed and treated in certain ways. But maybe we want to talk about the plot a little bit more. Well, let's let's go over the characters. So let's go over Archer and T'Pol first. Do you want to talk a little bit about them? Yeah. So Jonathan Archer is our hero, and he's the captain of the Enterprise. Um, his father had designed the engine of the ship, and so he has this personal connection with it. I was reading he was seen as a cross between Chuck Yeager and Han Solo, um, <laughs> which I can kind of see. And He also is not a big fan of Vulcans. I thought his character was like a little bit more, I don't know. He was not 100% fully likable in this episode. No, you're right. Because he's very resistant to some of his crew members and he seems kind of like, there's clear hostilities with the Vulcans and other races um, throughout this episode. And I think that's the point of this particular series is showing how those relationships get better over time. Yeah, it didn't bother me so much because it is the first episode and I I figured that was they were sort of laying the groundwork for that all of that changing. Yeah. So, I think he is meant to be a little bit of a hothead and and you know that that's okay, but he is there's elements of him that are likable, but overall he's a little bit flinty, I would say. Mm-hmm. And then T'Pol is played by Jolene Blaylock and she's the Vulcan. Um she's science officer and She's been assigned to the crew. Archer didn't necessarily want her there. Vulcan High Command wanted her to be on the ship. So she's not a member of Starfleet. And she just seems very keeping herself separate from the others. There's a lot of characters, honestly. 
But yeah. I think only other Trip is kind of the only other one that has a little bit more prominent role in the first episode. And he's played by Connor Trenier. He's the chief engineer. And he and Archer are friends. I felt like all the men all looked like each other. Yeah, they're all kind of youngish white guys with short hair. <laughs> yeah. And it's all kind of like light brown hair. And it's just like, yeah, and the one guy has a British accent. So that was the only way I could tell yeah. Malcolm Reed apart. But yeah, so I thought that Archer looked like a slightly older version of Trip. And Malcolm is just a British version of Trip. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. But then there's also Hoshi Sato, mm -hmm. who is played by Linda Park, and she's a communications officer. And I thought she was really neat because she's an interpreter. And Archer kind of coaxes her to join the crew because their mission is to kind of return a Klingon to his people. And they don't know a lot about the Klingon language. So Archer coaxes her onto the ship by saying, hey, you'll be like one of the first people to, to study this language and stuff. And I I actually thought that was really interesting because it showed that Starfleet in general understands that there are different roles that everyone has to play. And, and it's not all about like, oh, space battles and stuff. Like the humanities are important. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And then there's also Travis Mayweather, who's played by Anthony Montgomery, the only not white guy. <laughs> <laughs> I did like him, but his, his part was kind of small in this one. He is apparently the helmsman of enterprise i i don't know what that means <laughs> does he <laughs> he's kind of the pilot -ish? well he yeah he does some navigation stuff they they make the point that he is what's called a space boomer so he was born in space which i thought was neat and i think that they yeah. underestimate his skills because he's young but he's like i was born on a ship i like know everything about the ship and they don't really give him as much credit and I thought that was kind of like frustrating but well again I think that's something that is gonna change later on yeah but there was there was this one scene that I thought was probably not supposed to be funny but, <laughs> but he's trying to teach Archer and Trip some of the controls because they're gonna go off on their they're gonna go off in the smaller ship so Travis isn't gonna be there so he's trying to teach Archer and Trip how to work the controls and trip is just like not getting it <laughs> and i don't know if it's supposed to be funny because it's kind of a tense moment but i found it pretty funny and then there's dr flocks who's played by john billingsley and he's the chief medical officer besides to paul he's the only non-human member he is a denobulin alien which probably means more if you are more into star trek than i am <laughs> But that's it for the characters. Yeah. And and essentially, one of the main things about this episode, these two episodes put together, the, the pilot is actually called Broken Bow, and it refers to Jonathan Archer's hometown in Oklahoma, I guess Oklahoma. So, But one of the main things is trying to get the Klingon back to his people. And it's clear at this point in the Star Trek universe that the humans don't really, I mean, the, the linguist that they bring on, Hoshi, she does know the language, but there is this idea that Klingons don't really speak English. There's not as much understanding of the cultures. There's not as much understanding of the language. And it's still very much a contentious relationship. And there's even still a much more contentious relationship between humans and Vulcans. Mm -hmm. Okay, so maybe since we did the, the characters... Do you want to get into what you did not like about how they treated T'Pol? Yeah. So 
I mean, she has a lot of the qualities that you expect from a Vulcan. She is a little bit more analytical, rational, no real surface emotion. And that's all consistent. And that's not my issue. The main issue is this really weird scene with Paul and Trip, where they have to... Oh my god, yeah. (laughs) Decontaminate each other using this gel. And it's very... It's unrealistic in that I don't think that they would do that. Like, I think that there would be something with either the doctor assisting or they would be allowed to do it to themselves. But they're supposed to put this gel all over each other's bodies and they just met. And she's acting very like clinical about it, which is, I guess, logical. And Trip is even acting a little bit clinical about it. And they're kind of like fighting while they're doing this. And I know, and not to like give a total spoiler, but these two characters do end up having a relationship later. So I know that it's sort of meant to be a semi-flirtatious thing, but it just, it comes off very objectifying of her, even though she's not, she's the science officer, she's all business. It just, I don't know. I feel like if they really wanted to do something kind of gross and have the standard sexy girl character, this seems like a really odd choice. Mm-hmm. an illogical character to have to depict in that way in that moment. And I also feel like they just, it's unrealistic to have had them have to do that anyway. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I wrote in my notes when that happened, super unnecessary rubdown shots. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I definitely agree that she is objectified, but I think he is too a little bit in that scene because there's this, like, the, it was just shot in a very unnecessary manner in which there were very extreme close-ups of their bodies as they were rubbing this stuff in. And I was just like, this seems really out of place. Yeah. Yeah. I I would agree that he's being objectified too, but it just, I guess just because of the way their characters are different, I almost felt like, well, a guy like him, he's a little more casual. He's, I mean, he comes off sort of cocky and silly in a certain way. And I felt like, I don't know, he might go along with something like that. But I felt like she... But again, she's very clinical. So maybe she would just be like, whatever, we're just supposed to do this. But it just felt stupid. (laughs) Yeah, it it felt forced. And it felt out of theme with the rest of the episode, I think. Yes. Yes, very much so. There was nothing else like this in the episode. And not that there aren't weird moments like that in other Star Trek series, but it just felt sort of shoehorned in and weird. And I do, I have heard that that is a little bit of a criticism of this particular series, that it does tend to have moments like that, that seem kind of objectifying of a bunch of the different characters, not just her consistently. Um, And that sometimes that is, it feels really unnecessary. So I don't know that that would prevent me from continuing to watch it. I think one of my other main criticisms generally was that it was kind of boring. (laughs) That's fair, I think. Yeah, I don't, I ultimately, I, I kind of, was reviewing the plot in my head later and thinking, why did they need two episodes for this? (laughs) I don't think that they would have used two if this were being shot today. And I think that you could get the same information across in a little bit more exciting way or or just condense it a little bit. Uh, Because ultimately, it just felt overly long and a little, little bit slow. So it also seemed like they were trying to pack a lot in there. Yeah. So you're introducing all these characters and you're getting them on a ship together. And then you're giving them this mission of returning Clang, the Klingon, to his people. But then there's also this other side plot with the Sulaban. Mm-hmm. And I feel like maybe they didn't need to do all of that in one. Maybe. I don't know. 
Oh, I agree. That was real. That part was ex- extremely boring to me, and I just felt like they didn't even really need to do that. <laughs> I would have streamlined the heck out of this if I were writing it and just made it focus on the Klingon warrior and also like explain his character even more and just kind of focus on that. And I think that you could do it in one episode. Yep. <clears throat> I mean, there. I mean, there's some neat stuff in there, but it just. I think it just sort of shows that this is so early in the. So it's set in the 23rd century, and that seems far-flung to us, but it's so much earlier than what we see in the original series, and so the technology has to feel very sort of bad. And I know that that's a, that's a thing they're trying to explore, and what that, what that symbolizes is this sort of almost mid, if we were looking at this as being a, an analog to the 20th and 21st century, this is supposed to feel like the difference between the 40s and the late 60s. And so it does feel like not very sophisticated technologically, but I think that also is frustrating for the viewer. So gotcha. Yeah, they'd only just not that long before this show starts, been able to figure out how to do warp flight. Right. So it's really new and and it feels kind of scary. And I don't know that that comes across among the crew members. They don't feel quite so excited that this is such a new thing to be doing. There needed to be more wonder, I guess. I could see that. But now that I like said all these bad things, were were there things that you enjoyed (laughs) or also didn't enjoy? Okay. So I think some of the things that I liked about it, I already talked about Sato a little bit and her linguistic skills. But one of the things that I have always really enjoyed about sci-fi and fantasy and stuff is the intersection of different people and and species. So the fact that they kind of threw in humans in Starfleet and then the Vulcans and the Klingons and the Suliban and all this stuff is going on. The Suliban and the Klingons, I think, are kind of in this they call it a temporal cold war. Mm-hmm. I, I think we I should also preface this by saying I grew up as a Star Wars person and my parents loved Star Trek, but I don't, I don't know. They never actually like really sat me down and, and got me into it. So I don't, I don't think I come to it with as much knowledge as you do. No, I, I probably don't have as much more than you think I do. I, I really didn't watch either Star Trek or Star Wars too much. I think I saw some of the movies when I was young. I remember seeing Star Trek to the Wrath of Khan in the theater when I was little, and I was aware of it. But it's so in the culture that I kind of knew all the like ins and outs without ever really watching full episodes very consistently. And even now, I haven't really seen that much of the original series. My husband is on a complete Star Trek rewatch from the original series onward and is currently watching the cartoon. There's a cartoon. Yes. There's a cartoon. I had no idea. So I've seen some episodes of that when he's watching them. But recently, some he and some friends of ours were all just sort of rattling off all the movies and their favorites of each series. And I was just a little bit lost. And I've, I've seen bits of each series by this point, except I had not seen any Enterprise. And I've seen the J.J. Abrams films and everything. So mm-hmm. a lot of the reason for some of this is that I... Personally, I'm not as big of a fan of the space opera. I love science fiction, but the space opera may not be my favorite subgenre of science fiction. So, okay, yeah. I mean, I I really did enjoy this, and I'm. I, I guess that my other question would be: Would you watch more of this series? I actually think I will. 
yeah, I, I have some time off coming up, so I think I'm going to watch a couple more episodes and see how I like it, how it continues. I didn't check to see how many episodes there are in the season or how many seasons there are. There are four seasons. There's 98 episodes. Ah, that's too many. <laughs> <laughs> but also, I see that all of the Star Trek shows are on Netflix. They are. Or at least most of them. And my parents were big fans of The Next Generation. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I might jump around and try to broaden my knowledge of the universe. So, yeah, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I think I ultimately did also enjoy it. I think that I've heard, I've heard that it gets a little bit more serialized and a little bit more contemporary in its storytelling in its third and fourth seasons. So since it isn't, it's not like a commitment to the X-Files or something. This is, even though 98, that's a lot, but I got through all of Fringe in a summer, so I think I could probably get through this. I will say that of the other series that I've watched, Deep Space Nine is probably except for the ones where we're getting into even more contemporary time that we'll talk about in a moment. Deep Space Nine has a little bit more familiar serialized storytelling style. Mm -hmm. And even though it comes off a little bit dated because that was the 90s, it still kind of holds up. And I have watched not quite a season of that, and it's pretty good. So Cool. Yeah. Thank you. I'll check it out. Yeah. And you've, you've also got your first female captain on Voyager, so that's another one to consider. I haven't seen any of that, though. Okay, cool. Yeah, I think Amy, one of our friends, really likes that. Yeah. That particular show. She does. Yep. Gotta love the female captains. That's right. You started watching Discovery, yes. which also takes place before the original series. Um, and it's on CBS All Access, which is why I have not watched it. Yes. <laughs> so tell us about that. Yeah, I actually think you would really like this one. And I think this one benefits from being current. So it already sets itself up as being a more contemporary storytelling style of being more serialized. There's a lot more action in each episode. Each episode is a little bit more clear, and they don't give these giant info dumps, um, which I think was the problem with Enterprise's pilot. So I have not watched a lot of episodes of this yet, but I there's two seasons, but there's only 29 episodes, so I'm hoping to get caught up pretty soon. And I wanted to like get more into Star Trek. And so I thought this would be a good way to get into it since this is on now. So this was actually the first scripted series for CBS All Access. And I think that they showed a few episodes on CBS primetime to kind of get people hooked so that they would follow it over to the streaming service. And the interesting thing about this show is that it almost has a false pilot. Like they use the pilot episode to describe events that in another series they might have simply referred to in backstory and used in flashbacks or revealed more slowly. But they go ahead and dive in with this inciting incident that then does not form the basic core structure of the, the rest of the show. And I thought that was a really interesting device. So hmm. yeah, I feel like kind of of two minds about that. Like, oh, you made us invested in all these characters, and then they're not actually going to be, not all of them are really going to be on the series going forward. And yet the series has all these other characters that we don't actually get to see in the pilot. So I don't know how I feel about that. I know. Yeah, that was my main thing of like, ugh, that's when it was clear that it was moving in a different direction, I was a little bit disappointed. But then I also was like, okay, well, let me give this a try. But there is one character who continues. So Sonequa Martin-Green stars as Michael Burnham. People may know uh, her from, uh, she was on The Walking Dead. And she was kind of a 
minor continuing character on there. She was really, really good, but she wasn't one of the main people. And her character, Michael Burnham, is a female science specialist. She had actually been like the second in command on a ship, a ship before the Discovery. And she's not Vulcan. She's human. But she, her parents were killed and she was raised by Vulcan. Ooh, that's interesting. Yeah. So she's in Starfleet. She's very, very driven. She's very, she has kind of been trained in this mindset of the Vulcan culture. So kind of like T'Pol, she's, you know, very logical, a little bit unemotional, very stoic, etc. But she is actually human. And a, a lot of the things too, is that she's got a lot of these repressed memories of her parents being killed, and she witnessed it, but she's trying not to let that bleed through into her life going forward. But it's, it's hard. She's on a ship with some other folks, including this guy played by veteran character actor Doug Jones, but he also usually appears in full makeup as kind of creature-like characters. So he's been in all kinds of things from Hellboy to various movies by Guillermo del Toro. So he's usually not recognizable, but he's he's a little bit like you've seen him in stuff. He's tall and skinny, but he usually has his entire face covered with prosthetics. I like him a lot. He's very cool. Um, he's a type of creature called a Kelpian, and it's a new species that was created for this show. Unlike the the Vulcans, his species is a little bit more empathetic. And yeah, he's sort of like the data character on this show. He's very sort of funny and interesting. But he has a very complicated relationship with Michael because they served on this previous ship together that they reveal in the pilot. And I won't spoil precisely what happens, but she does cause a series of catastrophic events that causes their captain to be killed. Ooh. So she's actually court-martialed and removed from Starfleet and is in prison. We go into the next part of the series that actually details her getting assigned to the Discovery by the captain Gabriel Lorca, played by Jason Isaacs, who people may know as um, Lucius Malfoy. And he's a very, very strange guy, but he, um, he wants Michael aboard the ship because she is a really brilliant scientist, and he ends up getting her sentence kind of commuted. So she's not still, she's not really back in Starfleet yet, but she is able to serve on the ship and, and provide advice and guidance. But she does get a lot of flack from the other crew members because they know she's an infamous, um, in fact, her roommate, uh, Sylvia Tilly, played by Mary Weissman, when she first meets Michael, she's like, oh, that's funny that you're a woman named Michael. The only Michael I know of is the terrorist, Michael Burnham. You're not her, are you? Ha ha. And it's like, um, yeah. Oh. <laughs> but it's it's not really an act of like terrorism or purposeful mutiny. She thought she was making the right choice, but it still resulted in disaster. But that does not really change how everyone relates to her. She is still seen as the pariah on the ship. One of the other characters I really like is Paul Stamets, played by Anthony Rapp, and he's the chief engineer, and he studies the study of fungi in space. <laughs> so he's like, essentially would be a microbiologist or something, but he's really, really funny. And he's also the first openly gay character in a Star Trek series, which Sulu was portrayed as gay in Star Trek Beyond, but that was the first time that that had ever been established. So even though Sulu is a character from the original series, since Discovery takes place 10 years before the original series, Stamets is still the first, technically, chronologically. <laughs> chronologically. And I remember in Beyond, the Sulu thing was kind of a glimpse in the background of his family. Yeah. 
it wasn't like a big, no, big thing. No, it was not. Anyway, like I said, I have not watched a ton of the episodes yet, but I am really enjoying it so far. And I think that it is a little bit more sophisticated, kind of complicated take on the Star Trek universe in so far as you you have almost an anti-hero as your protagonist. Hmm. Not that she's like a Breaking Bad type character or anything, but just that she begins having to do a redemption arc from the get-go. And I think that's pretty interesting. And I also think it's interesting that she certainly had had a higher rank in her previous ship, but she's not a captain or an XO or even in a very high-level position on Discovery yet. So your main character that the the viewer is meant to sort of follow is really kind of an, in terms of what she is supposed to be functioning as on the ship, kind of an ordinary crew member. And I think that's kind of refreshing in a way. So we're not seeing like the the white male captain hero who's our protagonist. We see this woman, she's female, she's a woman of color, and she's also having to fight through preconceived notions of her performance ability and even her personality from day one. And I think that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, all of what you've talked about has made me interested in it. And I'm, I was interested in it when it first came out, but you know, I didn't want to get another streaming service. Yeah. But maybe I could track it down through the library or something. Oh, you sure you sure could. And so they're currently on season two. I think that might have even just wrapped up. So I bet you could find season one at the library. Cool. And I will say CBS All Access, I've been watching a couple things on there, but I'm sad that I haven't been using it as much as I probably want to. Mm -hmm. But this is the main thing that I am watching on there. So and I want to start Picard. That's the other new Star Trek show that they've got on CBS All Access, which is all about Jean-Luc Picard, the captain in The Next Generation. So, Right. Okay. So Next Generation, I assume, would come after the original series, right? Yes. Okay. Because there, there are a bunch of bunch of shows. I don't know where things are in the timeline <laughs> all the time. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm sure that you can find an article that kind of goes through what is the chronological order to watch all the Star Trek things in? And technically, in many ways, you actually could just watch Enterprise Discovery, the J.J. Abrams reboot of the original series movies, and then maybe even jump straight to Picard because, in a way, the J.J. Abrams films erased the timeline from the original series onward. That's confusing. Yes. <laughs> I don't think that you need to think of it that way, though. But yeah. <laughs> okay. I, I did look up a Star Trek timeline. And yeah. It's really confusing. Yeah. I think the reason why if you want to talk about Star Trek versus Star Wars, and if you if you're only focusing on TV shows in Star Trek and, and the films, and if you're only looking at Star Wars for just the films, Star Wars is so much easier to kind of consume because even now there's not that much stuff. I mean, there's a lot of extra media if you want to read books and watch cartoons and stuff. But if you're talking about just the canonical films and maybe The Mandalorian, that's it. There's not that much. But Star Trek, oh my goodness, it's like Doctor Who. There's just tons and tons and tons of it. Yeah. And spanning decades. So yeah, it's it's intimidating, which is why I've been a little bit hesitant to try to do that myself. But I think you can also just dip in and out. And Star Wars made it nice and easy because they... Just named everything episode one, two, three. <laughs> yes. So everything's kind of in order already. Except Rogue One and Solo are out of that. So you'd know, yes. you need to know when to watch those, but that's it. Yes, you do. But that's not, it's not, you could find that easily. 
I'm still trying to look up this timeline and all of the series, which includes the original, the animated, the next generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise Discovery, something called Short Treks, which I think is on CBS All Access and also Picard. Mm -hmm. All of the series amount to 770 episodes across 35 seasons. Okay. That is, that's a lot. That's a lot. It's really hard to just kind of jump into. Yeah. But you consider each each of those series is a separate, discrete TV show on its own that you can completely understand by itself. Knowing more can help you, of course, and make it a little richer, but you don't really need to do it all. You could even just watch only the theatrical films if you wanted. Not just the J.J. Abrams films, but there there have been Star Trek theatrical films since 1979. So... You could just watch all of those if you wanted, and you'd get a different experience. So That's very true. I think it's cool that there is so much, and that one of the things that gives me hope, I guess, for the future is that Star Trek's entire oh, like creative impetus is peace and mm-hmm. exploration and science and like getting along with others in this global way and trying to avert and avoid war and promote peace. So I think that's pretty nice. Yeah. And I think very relevant. Yes. So if you had to recommend just one movie or TV show, Mm -hmm. which would it be? Honestly, I do have a really soft spot for the first J.J. Abrams theatrical film. I think that that actually is pretty fun. The actors interpret the original series characters in ways that are both paying homage to them and also making them fresh and new and slightly different. And it's a nice entry point for somebody who doesn't really know much about the the world. And especially the first one is beautifully shot. It's really fun. And there's a lot of moments of humor, which are, there's a lot of humor in the original series that I think people aren't quite aware of. And that comes out in that film. So that's one of my favorite things. Cool. What about you? So my experience with Star Trek is a lot more limited. So I've seen some of the original series. It didn't it didn't quite grab me. I can't remember if I've really watched any of the other TV shows. I've probably seen a bunch of or some of the Next Generation while my parents were watching it. Oh, also I have this really weird recollection of my parents taking us to go see Star Trek Nemesis, which came out in 2002. Mm. And we went to the theater and I was just like, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> but we went because they wanted to see it. <laughs> I would also have to say the first J.J. Abrams Star Trek. It came out in 2009 and that was the summer I spent in Maine. And right before I was due to arrive at the at the AmeriCorps thing, my mom and aunt drove me up and we saw Star Trek in this like really small, <laughs> like middle of nowhere theater. And I I just remember like my mom loving it. And I was like, okay, this is a lot of fun. But the fact that, that she really loved it and my aunt really liked it a lot, I would say that it's my favorite just because it was it was a really good experience when I saw it. So Aww. yeah. And it's a very fun movie. It is. It is. Cool. Any other things to say about Star Trek? Are we good? We are I think there are listeners who are more like in the Star Trek fandom will find this slightly frustrating. But I think it's interesting to to hear the perspectives of people that 
have respect for the franchise, but may not be as knowledgeable about it. Hopefully. The only thing I wanted to say was, if anyone is more involved in the Star Trek universe, if you want to give us some recommendations of of which shows to check out, or, or even specific episodes, or books, or anything like that, we would gladly take them, because we are a little bit overwhelmed. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a lot. It's it's exciting that there is so much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. So next time, we're going to talk about some other things. We're going to talk about the new DC movie Birds of Prey, and both the book and the Netflix adaptation of The Stranger. Our theme music is by Joseph McDade. And you can find me on Twitter at KWTaylorWriter. And me at Carrie Gessner. And you can find us together on Twitter at Podcast. If you want to email us, you could do that at PositivelyPopCulture at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and join us next time for another episode of Pause Pop. <laughs>